Persona non grata. You ever heard that phrase? Of course you have, right? Most people have. Do you know what it actually means? No, you don't, do you? Yeah, most people don't. Yeah. I didn't either. So it's recently that I figured it out. It means, you're not, you're not going to believe this. It means person without grace. That's what it means. Now you see it, right? It's pretty obvious. We typically use the, the expression when we're talking about somebody who's no longer welcome, right? No longer welcome, wherever, wherever that is. You're a persona non grata at the restaurant or at the store, at your office or whatever. Hope not at your office. But for my purposes today, I'm going to use this expression to talk about myself. Because for, for most of my life, I was a persona non grata. In other words, I was a person without grace. Hang on a second. It's probably a good time for us to define the word grace. This is something that would change the world, by the way, if we could just define terms before we started talking about them. Don't you think? Because I find that in the common culture, we talk about stuff and one group of people's talking about it this way and one group's talking about it this way and we're not talking about the same thing, but we fight and all that stuff. So here's what grace means. Grace is unmerited or unearned favor. Basically, it's a favor rendered by one who need not do so, okay? So that's what it is, unmerited favor. So for most of my life, I never gave anyone any grace for anything, ever. For my friends, that didn't make a difference because by virtue of our friendship, they earned my favor. They were my friends. My friends love me, so I love them. I didn't live by the golden rule, but I live by the rule of reciprocity, which is do unto others as they do unto you. Remember, the golden rule is not that, okay? The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, as you would like them to do unto you. I did unto others as they did unto me. So for anyone who betrayed me, for anyone who turned on me, I had no love. And consequently, I showed no grace. And I kept track. And I kept records. I had a list. Anyone who wronged me in any way made their way onto that list. And once a person made their way onto my list, well, they never made their way off that list. It didn't happen. And by the time I reached my late 20s, that list was rather long. You know, you're grown up a little while, it happens. And I'd grown quite adept at maintaining that list. No one ever taught me or even told me that there was any other way to be. My practice wasn't pretty, but I had no reason to question it. But there came a time when that all changed. Years ago, when I was a young lawyer, I was working for a large statewide law firm. We had a few hundred lawyers in the firm. I started off in their Fort Lauderdale office off of Broward Boulevard. After about a year down there, the office up in West Palm Beach needed help because they signed up a new client. So they moved me from Fort Lauderdale up to West Palm Beach to kind of help out. And when I got there, they showed me my new space, and I took my box of stuff, and I started to settle in. And one of the lawyers in the litigation department, that was my department, stopped by and kind of stuck his head into my office. Now, I knew who he was, but I'd never really met him in person. But I figured, okay, it's my first day. He's roughly my contemporary. He's coming to welcome me. But I was mistaken. I said, hey, Ray, right? That's not his real name, by the way. 
And he replied just very curtly, hey, all right, trying to make conversation. I said, so what's it like working here? Anything I need to know, anyone I need to meet, anyone I should avoid. By the way, after I worked there a while, I knew those were all really good questions. But his reply took me by surprise. He said, absolutely true. He said, yeah, ask someone else. I've learned not to get too attached to new lawyers. With that, he walked away. And I thought, ouch, like that was, that was harsh. I figured, okay, he won't be a friend. Wonder about the other guy. There was another young lawyer who worked in the department. I'm gonna call him Aaron, also not his real name. But later in the day, I made my way over to Aaron's office and I stuck my head in, I introduced myself, I said, hey, I'm Russell, moved up here from the Fort Lauderdale office to work with you guys. They told me you're all overwhelmed. He didn't even pick up his head. He just kind of grunted, okay, like that. Then I asked him something else, can't remember exactly what that was, and all he offered was nothing. He said nothing, no reply, didn't pick his head up, just kept doing what he was doing. And I walked away thinking, all right, I guess the lawyers here are just horrible people. <laughs> and with that in mind, I acted accordingly. Whenever I passed Ray in the hallway, I looked the other way. Whenever I saw Aaron, I kind of scowled at him. And I, I have this habit of kind of going, like growling a little bit, asked my family. I picked it up years before, and I think it really irritates Beth and our sons, but I still do it, but I kind of only do it for me now. Like, I don't do it so other people can hear it, but I still do it. Those two guys made my first few months in that office horrible. They wouldn't speak with me. They wouldn't work with me. They certainly weren't interested in collaborating with me. And to be honest, <laughs> so what? Suited me just fine. You don't like me, I don't like you. You treat me badly, I'm gonna do the same back to you. I'm embarrassed kind of when I, when I think back of all the horrible things I said about those guys. <laughs> and I'm really embarrassed by all the really awful things I thought about doing to those guys. Like I said, I live by the rule of reciprocity. But then, and most of you heard at least this part of the story or parts of this part of the story, I met another coworker in that same office who introduced me to Jesus. He explained to me that God created the world and designed it to work perfectly. And then he created us, we people, men and women, created in his image to live in that perfect world, knowing God and enjoying him and bringing him glory and honor. That's the way it was designed to work. However, the first people God created, our original parents, incidentally, modern scientists have recently and very reluctantly proven that we are all descendants of those same two people. Our DNA all descends from a common pair. The Bible calls them Adam and Eve. And when they violated God's creation and failed to follow his commands, bad things happened. You see, here's what happened. They were convinced by God's adversary who came to them in the form of a serpent. They were convinced that they didn't need God and that they could be their own gods if they followed their own desires and ignored God's command. With that, they disobeyed God and effectively ran away from him, separating themselves and their progeny, all the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they would have from God from that point forward forever. And as a result, we, me, all of you, were born into this world without the relationship with God for which he created us. 
We were born into this world deserving nothing good from his hand. We were born into this world with a nature infected by sin. What is sin? Sin is merely an ancient archery term that refers to missing the bullseye. Archery is all about hitting the spot you're trying to hit. Sin says you missed it. That's it. Sin puts each of us on a road to eternity without any of God's blessings, and that is bad news. We need a remedy for that bad news. We need some good news. So here it is. God, because of his love for us, didn't leave us in that state, didn't leave us in our brokenness. He sent his son, Jesus, to solve our sin problem. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus lived a perfect, sin-free life and then willingly chose to die on a cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose from the dead. He defeated death. And when we come to that realization, if we will admit our sinful brokenness to God and ask for his forgiveness, if we'll turn from the way that we were and turn to God, submitting ourselves to him, setting him at the forefront of our lives, that's making him our Lord, then God has promised to save us from death and save us to eternal life in his presence enjoying his presence for his glory. When we do that, our old life effectively ends and our new life lived with Jesus, lived for Jesus, begins. That's what it means to be born again. We are reborn into this new life. And then my coworker showed me this passage from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, in one of the most redundant passages in Scripture, the Apostle Paul explained to the believers in Ephesus that it was only by God's grace that God chose to save his people from their sin and save them to himself. So important is this understanding of God's grace that Paul repeated it five times times in this passage. Here we go. It is by grace you've been saved. That's one. Through faith, that's two. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. That's three and four. Not by works, okay? You you have nothing to do with this. It all has to do with God's grace. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. But I didn't know that, so I asked him. I said, what does that have to do with me? And here's what he showed me from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. God forgave you. You need to forgive others. God has shown his people his amazing grace, and he has called us to do the same. Now, armed with this new calling, I reconsidered my attitude about Ray and Aaron. I began to offer them my help, even though they didn't want it. I invited them out to lunch, even though they usually turned me down. I spoke well of them to others. I took an interest in their lives and in their families. And do you know something? Before long, Ray and Aaron became my best friends in the firm, and they remain my friends to this day. When I left that firm, which is a long time ago now, but Aaron wrote me a letter to say goodbye. Kids, back in the old days, We used to write things on paper. Anyway, so he wrote me a letter to say goodbye. And I have to tell you, it's one of the nicest letters anyone's ever written me. I still have it. Because 
Grace is truly amazing. Grace changed my life, and it will change your life too. So today, we're beginning a four-week series that has that potential, has the potential to bring us to that life change. Together, we're going to examine the scriptures and listen to God's Holy Spirit as we explore God's grace. Now, I want you to know this is a journey for all of us. No matter where we are in our relationship with Jesus, if we are still exploring whether the good news about Jesus is really true, because there are certainly some of us here that are doing that, if we're pretty new to the whole Jesus thing, we want to know where to go next, or if we've been following Jesus for a long time, the message is still going to work for us. Now, we're undertaking this project with the understanding that the topic of God's grace is immense. It is a vast topic. We could probably talk about it for decades if we wanted to. We certainly aren't going to be able to cover the whole thing in four weeks. But I want to address the topic in the hope that when we are through, each of us will be better equipped to dig deeper and to be compelled to spend the rest of our lives on this wonderful journey, understanding and entering into God's grace more deeply. So today, we're going to discover that God's grace is more than forgiveness. All right, let's pray and we'll keep going. God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to study your word, to come together as your people, to sing in celebration, to worship in prayer, and to really draw closer to you. God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use your word to open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. God sends his grace not only to forgive us, but also to teach us a new way to live. Now, I began this morning by telling you the story of how I came to know about grace. But, but my story, it's not a magnificent story. It just kind of shows how grace works in the context of me forgiving my work colleagues. It's pretty minor in the grand scheme of life. Certainly, there are people in others' lives who have hurt them far more than my coworkers kind of sort of hurt me. God's grace is much bigger than you might have thought. God's grace is about more than just forgiveness. And now let's see how that works. To begin, what are the core attributes of God's grace? Well, for starters, here are two. Grace forgives, but it also guides. As we, we just talked about, it's by grace that we're saved through our faith in Jesus. But that's not all that grace does. That same grace that saves us is available to lead and guide us right now, right here in this earthly life. The problem is we simply fail to notice it most of the time. Limiting our understanding of God's grace to salvation will rob us of the power that grace has in every aspect of our lives here on earth. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced this? You had to wear a cast on your arm or leg or a neck brace and when you're out and about wearing the cast or neck brace, all of a sudden you notice all these people around you who are wearing casts and neck braces. You ever see that? You're like, I never noticed these people. What's going on around here? Or maybe you bought a new car. Maybe you bought a Camry. <laughs> and after that, you drove around and you noticed, man, there are a lot of Camrys on the road. Ever happen to you? Well, when we're aware of God's grace, guess what you see all over? Examples of God's grace. When we feel good, when we're happy, when things are going well for us, even when we learn a great lesson from a difficult moment, if we're mindful to always consider God's grace, 
we'll see and appreciate what's happened to us in the very fabric of our everyday lives. You can see examples of God's grace all the time, everywhere you go. God's grace both forgives and guides. God's grace restores us, and it also guards us. So grace also instructs us to deny ungodly ways and teaches us how to do life, how to live good and godly lives in the midst of this present broken age. Grace begins the work of salvation in the here and now, and it completes whatever is left undone in the there and then. So in other words, grace starts while we're still alive on earth, and then it'll finish up once we're with God in heaven. Both of them, both here on earth and in heaven, flow from the indispensable grace of God. Now, our world needs grace. We need grace. I need grace. Not for my last breath alone, but for every breath. The fabric of everyday life is alive with the grace of God. Now, I want you to consider these words from Paul's letter to a man named Titus. Titus is one of the New Testament books. It's a smaller book. It's one of the Pauline epistles. Epistles is just a fancy word for letters. So it's one of the Pauline letters written to an individual and not to a community, okay? So community is Ephesus and Corinthians and Romans. Okay, those are community letters. This is a personal letter, an individual letter. By the way, the other letters are 1 and 2 Timothy and the letter of Philemon. Now, we can think of Titus and Timothy as church planters. So Paul's letters were intended to teach these church planters how to lead their respective communities of believers. As for Titus, we don't really know much about him other than he's got a pretty cool name. We know that he was a Gentile believer who came to know Jesus upon hearing Paul's teachings. In the letter, Paul instructed Titus about leadership of his community of believers. So in our text today, which is Titus 2, 11 through 14, we're going to be introduced to the scope of God's grace. So let's read Titus 2.11 and 12. I say let's read. You don't have to read along with me, but out loud anyway. But I'll read. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. All right, so let's see what's going on. We'll go back to verses 11 and 12. Now, take a look at what I've highlighted. In this passage, the word grace appears right next to phrases like self-controlled and upright and godly lives. Well, what kind of grace is this? If grace means only forgiveness, why do the scriptures talk about learning to live a new way? Most believers are very familiar with the grace that brings salvation. We all get that, but not many believers have ever heard about the grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Most believers are familiar with a saving grace capable of securing for us heaven after we die. 
but have never considered what the passage reveals, that God's grace can nurture and grow us while we live on earth in this present age. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the four key passages or four key points of this passage. So number one, grace does bring salvation. Okay, this is the part of grace that most people know about, most, God, most God-fearing people know about, and that's wonderful. We saw it a couple minutes ago in, in Ephesians 2.8, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the good news, and that good news is a great starting point of our life in Christ, but it is just that. It is just the starting point because the good news gets even better because the passage also shows us that grace teaches us to say no. See, God doesn't desire for us to be forever trapped in a cycle of sin and forgiveness. We mess up on Friday, we confess on Saturday, we mess up on Sunday, we confess on Monday. That's not what he wants for us. Grace keeps on working for us. Grace teaches us how to resist temptation, how to resist ungodliness. That means that we can call on the grace of God before we're getting ready to fall back into sin. And there's more. Grace teaches us how to live. There's more to the Christian life than just saying no to sin. God's grace is available to help us replace our sinful habit patterns with self-control so we can live these upright and godly lives. Lives that aren't the result of trusting in ourselves or our works, but rather lives that allow God the space in our lives so that his grace can teach us. And finally, grace fills us with hope. I'm going to put up 13 and 14 again. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, while we wait for Jesus to return and establish heaven on earth, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. So do you see the connections between these verses and the first two I read you? See, from the first text, or from our text, we can see that life in Christ is not meant to be a desperate fight against sin or even a narrow focus on godly living. That's not what life in Christ is supposed to be about. In verse 13 up there, we see that it's God's grace that fills us with hope. Hope for this life and hope for the life to come. God's grace is after more than wiping the slate clean week after week after week. The grace of God wants to teach us a new way of living. So it follows that if grace is the teacher, then we are the students, and all of life is the classroom. If we possess the humility to allow God to transform our hearts, grace will not only transport us to heaven when we die, but will also bring heaven closer to us as we live. Now, this is a critical yet often forgotten part of the good news. Grace not only forgives our sin, grace teaches us how to live a life that's no longer captive to sin. Okay, so what's the issue? Why did we have to go over that so many times? Because too many of us as believers are so stuck in our unhealthy patterns that we miss God's grace. Here's how it happens. We start by choosing sin, which in and of itself leaves us in a, in a hole. And if you're in the hole long enough, you start to feel the despair and you start to feel the pain. But then you hear a voice in your head and that voice says, double down, go deeper. You see, Satan, the adversary, literally 
Hasatan in Hebrew means the adversary. So that's what the word Satan means. It's not a proper name. It's a description. It's a job description. Satan whispers enticement to us. Hey, go ahead and do that. That won't hurt. No one will know. And it attracts us even more to our sin. And, and, and that voice shouts condemnation at us after we've fallen for the prompting to sin. So it's this vicious cycle of sinning and then feeling guilty about it and feeling condemned. So you sin again and you feel guilty again. Because Satan's voice is a voice skilled in this subtle influence followed by paralyzing guilt. That's what he does. Satan's voice is a voice filled with accusation. You see, the scripture tells us that Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. He can do nothing but lie. So while it's true that sin brings death, the believer needs to internalize the fact that God's grace wipes away the penalty of death and wipes away the stain of sin. And then that same grace raises us to life and teaches us a new way to live. And that is why, by the way, when we go out and we're sharing our faith in Jesus, you share your faith in Jesus with everybody. Because you don't know who God is going to use, who God is going to grab by the heart and say, I'm going to make your life new. That's his job. Our job is to share. Grace gives us a high definition picture of the glory of God. As a result, God often speaks to us even in our sin. And by his grace, God can actually use our sin to restore us. God can take our failings and use them for our fortification by rescuing us from our failings and then using our failings to convict us so that we avoid them in the future. God wants us to learn from our past sins so that we can, as Jesus instructed the woman caught in adultery, we can go and sin no more. If you've ever learned from something horrible that's happened to you, something horrible that you've done, something horrible that you've said, something horrible that you've thought, that's how you experience grace. If you've learned the lesson from that, that was your experience in grace. If we're open to God's voice, even our sin can become grace in God's hands. God is ready to forgive. God is eager to teach. God will show us the path and correct our steps, not by insisting on obedience, that's a misunderstanding, but by revealing our hearts. Not by counting our sins against us, that's a misunderstanding, but by teaching us a new way to live, living with grace. So practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, it means this. If we fall into anger, or when we fall into greed, or when we choose judgment, God wants to reveal for us why we're doing that. What's the source of all those sinful things? Are they, is it sourced by our impatience, or our insecurity, or our pride? Well, God reveals that to us, and then he can heal the weakness in us that led us to those things. In that way, God's grace brings about for us a kind of resurrection. God's grace brings about in us a new life, a life connected to him and a life no longer stuck in the cycle of sin. So today's verses in Titus have not only begun to show us the purpose and the power of God's grace, but they've given us kind of a quick start manual. You know when you're building something you, you, or you buy a new uh, DVR or something and they, boy, am I that old? I said DVR. Do we really have those anymore? <laughs> but there's always a quick start guide and then there's the instruction manual. I thumb through the quick start guide. My wife reads the instruction manual. You know, live in a house like that. So we have a quick start manual on how we can fully embrace the grace of God. Once we understand the power of grace for our salvation, 
We can use the verse that we read as the basis for a daily prayer to help us stay focused on the grace that God shows us every day of our lives. So let me put up this verse again, this verse 12. And if we pray like this, and by the way, when I say pray like this, this is a guide. You don't have to write it down word for word. You can if you want, but you don't have to. Go back online, watch the video, feel like writing it down. But it's just a prayer. It just, make, it just has to sound like this. It just has to have this feel. Ready? God, thank you for your grace that saves. Please help me today to say no to my ungodliness and my attraction to all of the dangerous temptations in the world. Lord, through your grace, help me live a life that's self-controlled, upright, and godly as I endeavor to bring you glory in the midst of the sinful world that surrounds me. You get all of that right there from Titus 2.12. God has promised that when we pray like that, he will answer our call. It's by his grace that God answers prayers like this. As Jesus assured us in Matthew 7, if we ask God for bread, he's not going to give us a stone. The more we focus on grace, the more we endeavor to continually appreciate it, the more we practice reflecting God's grace to the world around us, the more grace will abound in our lives. Grace is truly amazing. So let's try this. Each day this week, starting tomorrow, because you've already missed it for this morning, let's pledge to each other that while we go through our morning routines, whatever your morning routine is, I was talking to the gang over in the kitchen this morning and they said maybe I had too much coffee. I had the same amount of coffee as I always have, two cups. That's part of my morning routine. Whatever it is, whatever your morning routine is, take at least a minute, 60 seconds, and ask God to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to the grace that he has already shown us and to the grace that he will show us on that day. God's given us the gift of grace. Let's start to pay attention for it. And then let's see what new things God will use his grace to teach us. Amen? Amen. So I'm not going to pray at the end. I want to do something a little different today. In his 2000 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, recording artist Paul Hewson and his band released a song entitled Grace. You might know Paul Hewson better by his stage name, Bono, and his band, U2. Bono, if you didn't know, is a faithful follower of Jesus. And the song beautifully captures the essence of what we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. So let's take a moment and enjoy this video, U2's Grace. In fact, let's use the lyrics that we'll put on the screen along with the video as our closing meditation. God, we thank you for your grace. Allow us to drink it in this week and understand it better and better. Until we gather again next week, God. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.